Good evening, and this week we start the final book of the Torah, the fifth book of the Torah, and um, things are not coming down, they're only ramping up. Um, the fifth book of the Torah happens all in the span of about 40 days, and it's 40, uh, I'm sorry, 37 days before Moses passes away. Uh, he passed away on the 7th of Adar. In the year 2488, that's 40 years after the exodus from Egypt, shy about a month from the exodus. Um, and 37 days before that, on the first day of Shvat, um, Moses gathers the Jewish people and he starts to give them, uh, you know, he gives them his, his final speech, which is recorded in the book of Devarim. That's why you find that the book of Devarim, much of it is uh, recounting the history of the Jewish people the story of the Exodus and their experiences in the desert, as well as the mitzvot. Many of the mitzvot are, I wouldn't just say a straight-up repetition. Obviously, there are some uh, important details that are added. Um, so it's not like it's not like the book of Dvarim is uh, just uh, for no good reason. It's not just a repetition of the beginning, but with regard to the mitzvot, most of the mitzvot were already mentioned uh, in, in, in previous books, although there are some new mitzvot as well. In this book. So while uh, the book of Dvarim in and of itself is a fascinating topic uh, to discuss how the book of Dvarim is uh, unique and very special from within the five books of the Torah, today we're going to concentrate on a specific detail at the very beginning of the book of Dvarim, which reveals a very fascinating thing. So let's go straight into it on page number three, source one. So this is um, alrighty, verse 3 through 5, it says the following, It came to pass in the 40th year, in the 11th month, on the first of the month. So again, 11th month is if you're counting from the month of Nisan, which is the month of Passover. So in the Torah, that's considered the first month, because that's the month of the liberation from Egypt. That's the month of redemption. And um, so if you count from there, 11 months later, is the 11 months later is the month of Shavat. So it came, I'm sorry, one second here. So it's on the first day of the 11th month. On the first day, Moses spoke to the children of Israel following all that God had commanded him regarding them. After he had smitten Sichon, king of the Amorites who dwelt in Cheshbon, and Og, king of, of the Bashan, who dwelt in Ashtarot and Adrei. On that side of the Jordan, in the land of Moab, Moses commenced explaining the Torah. Uh, in the Hebrew, it's Be'er et HaTorah Hazot. He's explaining the Torah. Now, Be'er, you know, that's the way you say it in Hebrew, Be'ur, which means to explain the Torah. But Rashi tells us, that what's being uh, what what's meant here in the word be'er is not just simply explaining the Torah. Look at Rashi; he explained it in seventy languages. So when Moses repeated the Torah to the Jewish people, he actually repeated it. He said it over to them in all seventy languages of the world. The original language is lashon hakodesh, the holy tongue, and then there are seventy languages. Where did these seventy languages come from? The Torah tells us in the book of Genesis, at the very beginning, in the second parasha, in Parashat Noach, after the great flood, and all of the people came together, 
and they started to build a huge tower, and they wanted to fight with God. And um, God decided that he has to stop this uh, construction project. And uh, the way he did it was by, you know, the Torah tells us that all of the people were together and they spoke one language, one unified language, which was the holy tongue. This was the language of Adam and Eve. That was the language of humanity for all of those years. And God came, the Novla Shams Fosom. He mixed up their languages. It's like he inserted a chip into all of the people and he divided them up into 70 different groups, 70 different nations that were divided by their language. At that time, everyone lived together in the same place, in the same plain called Bavel, Babylon. So what was there to differentiate people from each other? How did they kind of, how did they um, migrate away from each other and become separate nations? And the answer is through the language. So God set up 70 nations through 70 languages, and that's how we divided up the world. That's how the construction project uh, totally broke down. Uh, imagine having a, a team of construction workers, and some of them speak Spanish, some of them speak French, and some of them speak English, and the one who's in charge speaks Russian. It's not really going to work out, right? So um, that's what happened. That's how God shut down the project, and now there are 70 languages in the world. And... You know, the, the, the Semites, the you know, Shame and Aver, they had an academy where they where they learned about divinity, they learned about Torah, and uh, they they spoke Lashon Kodesh, the holy tongue. Abraham spoke Lashon Kodesh. His family spoke Lashon Kodesh, the holy tongue, and this was the language of the Hebrews, the language of the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When they came down to Egypt, they kept their language as well, and when they came out of Egypt and they came out into the desert and they received the Torah, all of that was given in Hebrew, in in the holy tongue. Now, 40 years after leaving Egypt, before they're about to go into the land of Israel, Moses tells them the entire Torah. And according to Rashi's explanation, not only does he repeat to them the entire Torah in the holy tongue, he's translating it into 70 languages. And you could really ask, you know, why? Why would he translate it into 70 languages? All of the Jews understood Hebrew. Usually the, the purpose for a translation is in order that the, your target audience should understand, right? So if there are Jews that don't understand Hebrew and they only understand English, so we translate in English. But at that time, all of the Jews that were there understood the language fluently. They were perfectly fine. They had no need for a translation. So why, why is Moses translating the Torah? For what purpose? Well, let's hold that thought and we'll continue on. Maybe we'll get back to it. Okay. Um, so you'll say, well, that's wonderful. You know, Moses, uh, I guess, was a linguist, and he translated the Torah. Is translating the Torah a good thing or a bad thing? So you'll tell me, well, if Moses did it, it's probably a good thing. A thousand years later, during the reign of Ptolemy, who was the king of Egypt, um, he commissioned a translation of the Torah. And we'll see soon how exactly that translation came about. But the sages at the time had a very negative perspective about it, as, as we see how it's uh, recorded in, uh, in the Talmud. All right, let's go to uh, source number two. Ptolemy gathered 72... Okay, so Ptolemy was a king in Egypt. Um, it was during the beginning of the Second Temple Era. Approximately, yeah, beginning of the Second Temple Era. And uh, he wanted to get a translation of the Torah. He was a very cultured man. He was a very intelligent person, and uh, 
he had a huge library and he wanted to have a Greek translation of the, of the Jewish Torah. So he sent a message to Elazar the high priest and he asked for the greatest sages of Israel to come down to Egypt uh, to do a job for him. So let's see how it's recorded here in Tractate Seferim. Ptolemy gathered 72 elders and sat them in 72 different rooms. Uh, there's another version that says that he put them on 72 different islands. Anyway, he, he basically he separated all of them without telling them why he gathered them. He went to each one and told them, Write for me the Torah of Moses, your teacher. Write it for me. Ptolemy doesn't speak Lashon HaKodesh. He doesn't understand Hebrew. So he says, write it for me. Write it in Greek. God granted insight to each of them, and they all produced an identical translation of the Torah. Now what? Well, I mean, it's basic. They know the Torah. Just translate it into Greek. It's not so simple. Just like, you know, you ever heard the concept, you know, lost in translation? Um, translating the Torah, translating any book is not a simple thing. Take any book and ask two different translators to translate it. You're going to get a different, a different product from both of them. Um, and the reason why Ptolemy gathered 72 of them is because he wanted to have an accurate translation. He wanted to see if anyone was trying to pull his leg. And uh, so he has 72 of them, and he wants to have an accurate translation. Now, they can collaborate and decide, hey, in order for certain things not to be lost in translation, in order for the wrong thing to come across, we have to change the order or change the word or whatever it might be. They couldn't collaborate. They couldn't compare notes because they're all in separate rooms, and they have no way of contacting each other. So what happened? God granted insight. It was a miracle. God caused the miracle to happen, and all 72 of them produced an identical translation. What does it mean that it was identical? They changed 13 things, including the very first words of the Torah were changed. How so? Uh, instead of writing, Bereshis bara elikim, if you would do an exact translation, you, have to say, you would have to say the following. Bereshis, in the beginning, bara created, elokim, God. In the beginning created God, heaven, and earth. Now, if Ptolemy is going to read that, what's he going to see? That there's an entity called, in the beginning, which created God. So instead of allowing for that problem to happen, all 72 of them are granted the insight from above that they should say, God created in the beginning. Elikim bara beratius. They flipped around the world, the words. Um, then there's another verse later on in Genesis. God said, um, in the original it says, Na'ase Adam, let us make man. Rashi explains that God was speaking to his heavenly, uh, his heavenly court, to the angels. But obviously God is the only creator. So in order not to give the possibility for Ptolemy to read, Oh, let us create. That means there's, mo- there's duality in God. Or that there's more than one creator. They said, God said, I will make man with a form and image. Also, not just, um, also, B'tzalmenu, in our image and in our form, right? God says, I will make man in my image and my form. What do you mean? God has a form, God has an image. So they just said, God, God said, I will make man with a form and image. In order not to give him the possibility for making such a grave mistake. The Talmud continues. 
That day was as difficult for the Jews as the day the golden calf was made. That's a heavy statement. The golden calf, that was like the beginning of all the problems. The golden calf, that was the greatest, gravest sin that the Jewish people committed to God 40 days after receiving the Torah. I mean, this was serious, you know, this is crazy stuff. And here we say that day, the day that the Torah was translated into Greek by these 72 elders a thousand years after the giving of the Torah, that day was as difficult for the Jews as the day the golden calf was made because the Torah cannot be translated adequately. And as we just illustrated, if you want to give an exact and perfect translation of the Torah, it's pretty much impossible. Way too much is going to get lost in translation. And the translation is going to be warped. So that, that's essentially what the Talmud is saying. Apparently, apparently, the Talmud is saying that translating the Torah is a bad idea. And when it actually did happen, it was terrible. It was like the day that the golden calf was made. So let, let's see how the Rebbe analyzes this thing, especially in comparison to what's going on in our parsha. How can it be that just because the Torah cannot be translated perfectly, the translation is considered such a terrible event to the extent that it is compared to the creation of the golden calf? Now the Rebbe is going to explain to us how bizarre such a, such a comparison is. It says, who, who exactly translated the Torah? This translation was made by the elders and sages of the Jewish people. Not only that, and they had divine assistance in the process. God was involved in the translation. He gave them divine insight that they should all make the exact same identical changes. Thirteen of them. The exact changes. That's a miracle. So we're talking here about a process that involved 72 real, legitimate elders of the Jewish people, and involving God. God had a hand in this. So how can you compare that to the, you know, the reason the Talmud gives that the Torah can't be translated adequately is insufficient to justify comparing it to the day of the creation of the golden calf. And the Rebbe said at the Fabringen, I haven't yet seen that any of the commentators address this question. So it seems to be like a, like a very basic and simple question. Like, what, what's going on over here? Why would the Talmud uh, insinuate that translating the Torah is like, is like idolatry? That, that's what it seems to say. This is idolatry. Like, who who'd made the translation? Not heathens, heaven forbid. I'm talking here about the greatest sages of Israel. And there was a miracle involved. Everyone agrees that there was a tremendous miracle. So what's going on? And by the way, what's the big deal for Ptolemy wanting to have a translation of the Torah? Not only that. Has a translation happened already? Moses translated the Torah into 70 languages. So what's going on? Now let's bring another story into the mix. This is going to bring us into the, 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 the how do you say, straight into the heat of Talmudic discussions. The Talmud is all about figuring out Jewish law, discussing Jewish law. And it's not done in a way of just telling us the laws, it, it, it explains, it, it, it's a record of how Jewish tradition was transmitted and evolved over the generations, from teacher to student, teacher to student, in that, in that amazing chain of tradition that goes all the way back to Sinai until today. Now, um, the, the Talmud is made up of two parts. There's the Mishnah 
and there's the Gemara. The Mishnah was written by uh, Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, Judah the Prince, of about 200 years after the destruction of the Temple. And in it, he, rec- he records uh, the most relevant um, discussions between the sages um, that encompass the entire tradition of the Oral Torah as it relates to Jewish law. And um, two of the most prominent names that are found in this work of Mishnah are Hillel and Shammai. Hillel and Shammai were uh, the leaders of the Jewish people uh, during the Second Temple era. Hillel was the Nasi, he was the president of the community, he was the president of the Jewish nation. He was the head of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the Jewish high court of 70 elders. His deputy was Shammai. Now these two uh, didn't come from like completely different places and meet at the top. You know, you can have a president and a vice president in the United States. They come from, they, they barely even knew each other before they were both sworn into office. Uh, Hillel and Shammai weren't strangers to each other. In fact, they were colleagues and they were, um, they were good friends. They were fellow students of the great sages Shmaya and Aftalion of the previous generation. Shmaya and Aftalion were the president and their deputy, uh, respectively. Hillel and Shammai learned from them, and they were, uh, you know, both uh, tremendous sages. Hillel was the president, and Shammai was his deputy. However, Hillel and Shammai, they uh, they each had their, you know, they had a different way of looking at things. Both of them legitimate ways of looking at Torah. Um, however, they had they had differing camps of how to understand the Torah and also to apply the law in cases where the law had to be figured out. Um, and most importantly, it's not really that Hillel and Shammai themselves uh, had arguments between each other, it was their students. There was Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai. There was the Academy of Hillel and the Academy of Shammai. Uh, obviously, their students were the ones that continued to lead the Jewish people after their passing. Uh, and their students kind of diverged into two camps of how to study the Torah and apply its laws. Um, yeah, the camp of Hillel and the camp of Shammai. Typically, the camp of Hillel is more lenient. The camp of Shammai is more strict. Um, and the halacha, the, the law is typically according to Beis Hillel. Why is that? Because we have a rule in the Torah. The Torah tells us that you should know that uh, you know, just from the written Torah, you are not going to know how to apply the law. In fact, the oral Torah, the oral tradition, also has many laws. But most importantly, it also has it, it specifically has a um, a framework of how Torah should evolve. Times will change, questions will come up, halacha will need to be decided. How do you decide halacha? And the first rule is the number one: halacha is decided in the Sanhedrin. It's not like it's uh, you know all the people can go vote. You don't decide the halacha at the ballot box. Halacha is decided within the halls of the Sanhedrin. You have the 70 sages, the 71 sages that are part of the Sanhedrin. They are the only ones that have a say. But when it's going to come to making a decision, it comes down to a vote. The Torah says, rabim You go after the majority. So whenever a halachic question was presented to the Sanhedrin and they had to come to a conclusion, they had to give a ruling, they would take a vote, and the halacha was according to the according to the majority. And the fact of the matter is that the house of Hillel was typically the majority. 
his academy had more students, had more graduates, more alumni uh, that were part of the Sanhedrin. And so usually they were allies and, and the ruling came down on the side of Hillel. And that is typically the tradition throughout the Mishnah, throughout the Talmud, until today. Usually if you'll find uh, a discussion between the house of Shammai and the house of Hillel, the law is according to the house of Hillel. Now, the Rebbe continues and says, The same expression, like the day of the creation of the golden calf, which was just used to describe the day that Ptolemy commissioned the translation of the Torah into Greek, this same expression, of it's like the day that the golden calf was made, is found in Tractate Shabbat in the following story. Let's go to source number three. Rabbi Abba said, I'm sorry, this is not from Tractate Shabbat, this is from Tractate Erevin, and this is, this is talking about in general the, the conversations and the debates between the house of Hillel and the house of Shammai. Rabbi Abba said in the name of Shmuel, for three years, Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel argued. Beit Hillel said the law should follow them, and Beit Shammai said it should follow them. Ultimately, a heavenly voice rang out. Both opinions are the word of the living God, and the halacha follows Beit Hillel. If both schools are the word of the living God, why, was, why does the halacha follow Beit Hillel? Because the students of Hillel were pleasant to others and humble. When Beit Hillel would teach, they would also cite Beit Shammai's ruling and even cite it before their own. We're going to learn a Mishnah. Usually, the Mishnah brings up the case, the situation. What should the law be? Beit Shammai says A, B, and C. And Beit Hillel says X, Y, and Z. And the halacha is typically like the house of Hillel. The reason why the halacha is like the house of Hillel, there's, there's a technical reason, and that is because they were the majority. The Mishnah is asking, why is it that at the end of the day, they were the majority and they merited that their opinion usually had the majority vote in the Sanhedrin? It's because they were humble, and they were humble to the extent that they would always preface their teaching by mentioning and quoting the teaching of Beit Shammai. Which, by the way, which teaches you a very interesting thing about Torah study. When it comes to Torah study, it's important to have confidence uh, that you're able to learn and understand in a certain direction, but not to be that brittle that if you hear someone else's opinion, you lose yourself. No. You hear the other person's opinion, granted, or as long as it's a legitimate opinion, it's coming from a legitimate Torah scholar, from a legitimate camp. Beit Shammai was a legitimate Torah tradition. And Beit Hillel, even though they heard what Shammai had to say, but since they had a different opinion, they were able to quote Beit Shammai, even before themselves. They were able to say, look, Beit Shammai says this, but we understand it differently, we understand it in a different way. And typically they were the majority. Now, let's go to Tractate Shabbos. One day, huge drama broke out uh, in the Jewish community. The Mishnah says, these are the laws which were said in the attic of Rabbi Chizkiya ben Garon when the sages went to visit him. Rabbi Chizkiya ben Garon was a great scholar and there's a mitzvah to go and visit the sick. So the entire academy came to his attic to visit him. Apparently while they were visiting him, they got into a debate about certain halachic issues and on the spot they said, okay, let's come to, let's take a vote. Congress is here, let's vote. <laughs> they didn't have to be in a specific place in order to take a vote 
and to determine the halacha. They could be in someone's attic visiting the sick, and they're having a conversation, and they say, okay, here we're going to take the vote. They counted, and the students of Shammai were more than the students of Hillel. They adjudicated 18 laws that day. 18 laws in Judaism were, came down on the side of Shammai because those 18 laws were debated in that attic and the majority there were the Shamites, the Shamutim. And, um, and they won. The Gemara gives more description of that day. They placed the sword at the entrance of the academy and said, One who wishes to enter, let him enter. One who wishes to exit may not exit. That day, Hillel bowed before Shammai like the other students. It was as difficult for the Jews as the day the golden calf was made. Wow. This is really interesting. We're not talking here about an outsider commissioning a translation into a foreign language. Okay, you could argue, you could say, look, you can't make an exact translation. What happened here? They didn't go against the law. The law is... The majority wins. They went, they they did they had they, they did due process. They went according to the law. The Rebbe is going to explain this. Let's go into the Rebbe's words. Here too we need an explanation for how this day can be termed so difficult for the Jewish people that it is compared to the day of the creation of the golden calf. Shammai was a great person. Both Hillel and Shammai were students of Shmaya and of Talion. Beit Hillel were even particular to mention Beit Shammai's opinions before their own. So what is so terrible about Hillel sitting submissively before Shammai like one of the students? And to the extent that this is compared to the day of the creation of the golden calf. <clears throat> Alright, so we, we, we have two main questions. The first question is, well, all of these questions are, are basically... The, the, the Talmud seems to be exaggerating. The Torah was translated from the Holy Tongue into Greek, and changes were made to it because it cannot be an accurate translation. What's the problem with that? And the Talmud seems to be condemning or lamenting that day. It was so hard for the Jewish people like the day that the golden calf was made. And the only other time that it says it was so bad, like the day that the golden calf was made, is when the Academy of Shammai was victorious over the Academy of Hillel, and 18 laws in Judaism were determined according to the house of Shammai. I mean, what's the problem? The creation of the golden calf was idolatry. Translating the Torah into Greek by the greatest sages of the time, and a miracle, you want to compare it to idolatry? The house of Shammai winning over the house of Hillel, all in due process. You're comparing to idolatry? So the Rebbe explains. To explain this, we first need to highlight the detail of the wording used. In both passages, the Talmud terms the events discussed as like the day of the creation of the golden calf, rather than comparing it to the sin of the golden calf itself. Now, if you're going to read the story of the golden calf, You'll notice that one day the Jewish people demand a golden calf. They come to Aaron, and Aaron says he's trying to like push them off. They gather the gold. Aaron throws the gold into a fire, and a golden calf appears. And what does Aaron say? Tomorrow you will celebrate to God. 
On that first day when they made the golden calf, no one served it. No one served the golden calf on the first day. No sin happened. The next day, Satan woke up the Jews very early in the morning and they came and they started to serve the golden calf. That's when the problem happened. That's when the Jewish people were condemned. That was what God was angry with. That's when God told Moses, that's it, I'm going to get rid of the Jewish people, etc. So you have to be very careful. You have to, you have to, you have to, you have to focus on the exact wording of the Talmud. Doesn't say that it's like the day that they served the golden calf. By the way, there's another way to to uh, describe that day, the day that the tablets were broken. When Moses came down from the mountain and he was holding two tablets, and he saw that they were serving the golden calf, he broke the two tablets. So if the Talmud wanted to compare the translation of the Torah into Greek for Ptolemy, or the fact that Shammai won over Hillel in those 18 laws, if you wanted to compare it to the sin of the golden calf, you should have said it was like the day that they served the golden calf or the day that the two tablets were broken. But it doesn't say that. It says it's like the day that the golden calf was made. What's the problem? What's the problem with the day that the golden calf was made? Following a simple reading of the Torah's account, the day on which the golden calf was worshipped was the day following the day of its creation. The verse states that on the day of the creation of the calf, Aaron said, tomorrow will be a celebration for God. By this he was trying to stall for time, as he was convinced that Moses would return the next day and everyone would serve God alone. The main part of the sin of the golden calf occurred on the following day. They rose early the next day and raised sacrifices. On this note, Nachmanides explains that Moses was not told, go down for your people have become corrupted on the day Aaron created the calf, but only on the following day, and the people brought sacrifices to it and prostrated themselves before it. So it turns out that as Aaron was making the golden calf and the Jewish people were going through this entire revolution and all of that, Moses was still on Mount Sinai studying the Torah and God was very happy with him and he was still teaching him, etc. When did God banish him from Mount Sinai? Because the people have sinned, that was only the next day. <clears throat> so now, So what's, what's the deal? So we still don't understand what's the connection between the translation, Ptolemy's Greek translation, to the day that the golden calf was made. I mean, according to all accounts, making the golden calf, that's probably not a good thing, right? That, I mean, translating the Torah into Greek, what's the connection to the making of the golden calf? Shammai winning over Hillel, what's the connection to making the golden calf? Fine, so it's not idolatry, but what's the connection to any type of... What, why is there any type of connection to the golden calf? So the Rebbe explains, the commentators discuss at length the reasoning behind the sin of the golden calf. What was going through their heads? Why did they need a calf? They had a Moses. So they thought Moses was dead. New, and, and what's... So instead of Moses, they're going to make a, a, a calf of gold. Well, what's, what's the issue? How would that help them? The Jewish people were not looking for idolatry, God forbid. They were looking for a leader to replace Moses, not a substitute for God. As they still believed in God. But they had a problem. They were under the impression that Moses was gone. Moses was their connection to God. So now they needed to have another something to serve as that connection. 
This is expressed in their statement. We don't know what has happened to Moses, the person who took us out of Egypt. They didn't say, eh, we don't want to deal with God anymore. We want to revert back to idolatry. That would be crazy. After 40 days after the giving of the Torah, why would they do such a thing? They saw God. What? Why would they revert to bowing to bricks? In other words, they were seeking an intermediary to stand between them and God. This was seemingly in accordance with the system God himself had instituted, in which Moses is described as the person who took us out of Egypt. The Exodus is not attributed to God directly, but to Moses who served as the conduit between God and the Jewish people. And this is something that God had set up. They knew that they needed to have this. They could not have that direct connection to God. They needed to have an intermediary. So now, following that logic, now we see, okay, they weren't looking to serve an idol. They were looking to create a new substitute. They were looking to create a substitute for Moses, not a substitute for God. Okay, so how does does this continue? Even after the calf had been created, but before it had been worshipped, Aaron was still hoping for a celebration for God tomorrow. Well, what does that mean, a celebration for God? How could there be a celebration after making a golden calf? He was hoping that this episode would result in spiritual improvement. When Moses would come and the Jewish people would realize that the idea of a calf is worthless. This would further express divine oneness that there is none other than God and the only one capable of serving as an intermediary is Moses. Why? Why could Moses be that intermediary between God and the Jewish people? Because he was appointed by God and sent as his messenger to the Jewish people. The golden calf was made up by the people. And that's what Aaron was hoping they would start to understand. You don't make these connections with God. God is so transcendent. God is oneness. God is all-encompassing. He is the one that determines the conduits. He is the one that determines who is the intermediary. He made Moses and sent Moses. If Moses is not here, you don't make up your own conduit. You can't make up your own connection. Making a golden calf is not going to help you, even though your intention is not that the golden calf is an idol, but that the golden calf is a conduit, is an intermediary. Well, if God did not determine that that golden calf should be the intermediary, then you're making a mistake. And so Aaron was hoping that when Moses would come back and they would realize, one second, we have a Moses, and we only have a Moses because God gave us that Moses, and therefore the whole idea of built of making this golden calf was, was, was a foolish mistake. Moses was a conduit for connection, not an intermediary who separates. When God sets up a conduit, when God sets up an intermediary, it's because God is opening up that connection and He wants that connection to go through that conduit. But when we set things up, based on our foolish little imaginations, even if we have reasons to believe that this could serve as a conduit. In fact, the Jewish people on the day of the giving of the Torah They saw what is described by the prophets as the Merkava, the divine chariot. And the prophets described that on the chariot there are like images of animals. One of them is that of a cow. So they they were going off of those divine visions that they had seen 
by the giving of the Torah. And so they thought that by making an image that looks like a cow, that would connect them to the Merkava, to the chariot, and through this, that would connect them to God. And I was trying to tell them, that's not how this works. You can't just make it up based on, you know, ideas that you've seen. You can't, you know, you, you can't create God in your own image. Right? That's the problem. God created us in His image, and then we tried to create Him in our image also. That was the problem with the golden calf. They were trying to create an intermediary. And God said, that, that's not how it works. I give you the intermediaries. I give you those conduits, those connectors. All right. So their intention was that the, that the, that the golden calf should be an intermediary. What happened to then? However, the actual outcome the next day was the sin of the golden calf, which some Jews worshipped as a form of idolatry, contrary to the principle of divine oneness. So what's the problem with the previous day? The difficulty, or the difficult matter, on the day the golden calf was created, not the day of which it was actually worshipped, but the problem with the first day was that it contained the potential to lead to the sin of idolatry. So on the first day of this episode, when Aaron was collecting the gold, and he put it into the fire, and this calf came out of the fire, the problem with that day was not idolatry. They, they had no intention of serving an idol. <coughs> they were just looking for a Moses. It was misguided, but there was no idolatry involved. The problem with that day is that that day made for the potential for idol worship. If there was no, if there was no molten image in the camp, they wouldn't be able to serve an idol. But now that there was this molten image, which they had intended to be only an intermediary, in accordance with the system that, that God had set up. They were misinterpreting it, but God had set up that system. The problem is, now there's the potential for idolatry. This is a huge problem. But it's not idolatry yet. Oh, So now we can understand how the Talmud could somehow compare the translation of the Torah into Greek to that day. Remember, we're not talking about a sin we're not talking about idolatry. We're talking about the potential for idolatry. The potential for a grave sin. The same is true, we're continuing here on page, um, page 8 in the middle. The same is true regarding the Greek translation of the Torah that the sages made for Ptolemy. The teaching that states that the Torah cannot be translated adequately means that there cannot be any precise literal translation preserving the original Hebrew structure. And since that's impossible, the problem is that this creates the possibility for erroneous conclusions by its readers. What's an example for that? Source number five from Tractate Seferim. They changed uh, from, from Bereshis Barah, they came from in the beginning, created God. They said God created in the beginning in order not to give the impression that beginning is a divine name and there are two divine powers. I will make man, they wrote, not as written, let us make man, in order to prevent Ptolemy from thinking that there are two divine powers. What do we see here? That in general, when, when you, you're trying to translate the Torah, you're dealing with something that could be potentially disastrous. Because if you're going to make an exact translation without proper changes, in order that things don't get lost in translation, you can make mistakes as grave as in the beginning created God. Or that there is more that there's duality. 
in the Creator. <coughs> Let's continue here. When a non-Jew like Ptolemy would later study a perfectly, a perfect, precise translation of the Torah in Greek, he wouldn't be able to understand various passages and could even reach an understanding completely opposite of the intended one. This is why God assisted the 72 sages and planted in their minds the same idea of making changes. That's what it means when it says that the Torah was not translated adequately. It means it was not done precisely, but for a reason. This is why the translation of the Torah is compared to the day of the creation of the golden calf. The day of the creation of the calf was difficult because it laid the groundwork for the sin of idolatry that took place the next day. Similarly, the day the sages translated the Torah into Greek was a difficult day for the Jewish people because it bore the potential of causing the Torah to be misunderstood and distorted. Okay. So now, it's so fascinating. The Rebbe takes a passage from the Talmud, shows how bizarre it is, but then tells us, hey guys, you have to, you have to actually look deeper and, and be very specific about the words to really realize what's happening here. Okay, so here we're dealing with something that is potentially, that, 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 that provides the potential for a severe fallout. Since it provides the potential for a severe fallout, that's why that itself is dangerous. The building of the golden calf was not a sin, but it was very, very dangerous. And we see that it led to idolatry, ultimately. So now, let's go to the whole story with Hillel and Shammai. Right? What's the problem with Shammai winning? It was only one day. 18 laws, what's the big deal? So let's continue. Similarly, regarding the day when Hillel sat submissively before Shammai. The actual fact that rulings were issued on the, that day in accordance with the opinion of Shammai was not the problem. Hillel conceded to Shammai and didn't maintain his disagreement, so the ruling was proper. No one called foul. The process was followed. The difficulty was that this had the potential of setting a precedent for ruling in favor of Beit Shammai in the future as well. Contrary to the general rule that the opinion of Beit Shammai doesn't count against the opinion of Beit Shammai. Why? What's, what's the problem? In other words, it seems that like God set up the system in a way that Beis Hillel should be the majority. There, there was like this, you know, that, that God really wanted it to be that way. It's not that it just happened by mistake or just, you know, fate had it that Hillel had more students. No, there was, there was a purpose and there was a reason why the house of Hillel was the majority and that the halacha, 99% of the time, went according to the house of Hillel. Why is that? It is known that Shammai reflected the divine attribute of severity. Another way to translate that would be um, discipline. While Hillel reflected the attribute of kindness. This is why Beis Shammai usually rules stringently, and Beis Hillel usually rules leniently. Hillel would descend to the level of each individual, and irrespective of their level, he would look at them with kindness. Hillel believed that he needed to descend to any level and express kindness there, educate the child according to their path, and then even when they grow old, they will not stray from it. It is Hillel's conduct that sustains the world because he acts kindly. Shammai, by contrast, acted in accordance with the attribute of truth, leading him to be more stringent. 
He wasn't really paying attention to the needs of the people, the level of the people. He was coming from an area of truth. He was coming up from the high mountain of truth. What's the problem? While you might be shouting the truth from the hilltops, such conduct cannot sustain the world. Sometimes you need to have a different element involved. There has to be kindness. You have to go. You have to, you have to, you have to descend to the people's level. You have to be lenient sometimes. So this is the general difference between Hillel and Shammai. Does that mean that either of them is um, compromising? No. They're both dealing with the truth of Torah. But even in applying the truth of Torah, there could be different ways of how that manifests itself. And Hillel was very determined um, to, 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 to be lenient and to be kind, and to allow for every Jew to be... In, in other words, in order that the Torah should be able to be uh, on the level of the people as well. He didn't compromise an inch of halacha, but where in halacha there was the possibility to be strict or to be lenient, Hillel was lenient, in order to make the Torah more available to the people, without any compromise. So now, here's the deal. If both of them are saying truth, as the heavenly voice said, both of them are the words of the living God. Um, <coughs> so now, what's the problem with one day Shammai being the halacha? So like this. Um, in practice, however, oh, one second, so what's the problem? The problem is that if the if the if the if the house of Shammai, if they set the precedent that they are going to be the majority, all of a sudden, Torah is going to be extremely strict, and there will be a problem for the world. It's going to be much more difficult for the people to be connected to the Torah. So, did that happen? No, that didn't happen. It was just one day, Shammai won those 18 rulings, and that was that. In practice, however, there was no negative result from the translation of the Torah into Greek, nor from the day when Hillel sat submissively before Shammai. In this respect, these events differ from the day of the creation of the golden calf. Moreover, we can argue that this Greek translation of the Torah by the 72 sages for Ptolemy and its editorial changes, starting with translating God created the world in the beginning, rather than the strictly literal in the beginning created God, brought the message of God's oneness to the nations of the world as well. Right? It's a good thing that it was translated into Greek. And they changed it in order that important ideas should not get lost in translation. Similarly, when Hillel sat submissively before Shammai like one of his students, not only did it not result in the law being determined in favor of Shammai in general, it even had a subjugative effect on Shammai. This may be the reason why we find a number of instances in which Beit Shammai are lenient. In other words, the fact that Shammai won, the fact that Shammai was accepted as Allah, it's possible that now they became, they had a tinge of Hillel in them at this point. Be it as it may, these two events of translating the Torah and Shammai winning were not terrible events. They weren't bad in and of itself. But the Torah compares it to the day of the creation of the, of, the, of the golden calf because 
both of these events provided the potential for something really horrible. Okay. Why did Moses translate the Torah into 70 languages? And why is that not compared to the day that... Um, that the Torah was uh, that that the that the that the golden calf was made. Here's the difference. Who commissioned the translation? In Devarim, God commissioned the translation. When God commissions the translation, there's no problem. There's no potential for a fallout. When Ptolemy commissions a translation, there's potential for a fallout. That's like the Jews commissioning an intermediary. When the Jews commission an intermediary, it's possible that the next day they're going to actually serve idols. If you would have asked them on the first day, guys, you crazy? Are you going to serve idols? They'd say, no way, of course not. What do you mean? God told us not to serve any idols. Of course we're not going to serve idols. We just need to have an intermediary. So what do we see from here? That when something is commissioned from above, it has all the blessings, and it's going to be fine. It's going to be perfect. When something is commissioned from below, you don't know how it's going to go. When it came to the golden calf, the results were terrible. When it came to Ptolemy's translation, thank God it didn't break down. So let's continue on this topic or this, this idea of translation. Today, the concept of translating the Torah is ubiquitous. Everyone does it in so many languages. And it's not just exclusively for the written Torah, the Chumash. Every area of Torah is translated, including the mysticism of the Torah. Chassidus, the fact that Chassidus is translated, should not be taken for granted. Why should it not be taken for granted? Um, first of all, you know, it could be argued, someone could argue and say that Someone who's not capable of learning these Hasidic teachings in their original Hebrew text has no business learning them. You could argue that. These are very sensitive texts. They're deep. If someone is not even capable of reading them, forget about it. It's not for you. You don't need them in order to do a mitzvah. There you have the Code of Jewish Law, and that's translated into English. Go ahead. Do it. Why do you have to translate Hasidus? Well, there's a reason why we need to translate Chassidus. And this is going to take us to a story that was told by the Baal Shem Tov. He wrote this in a letter. So let's, uh, let's go to section C, source number 6. Uh, in the letter, the Baal Shem Tov is describing an experience that he had one Rosh Hashanah. I ascended from level to level until I reached Mashiach's chamber in heaven, where he studied Torah from the great sages and with the seven shepherds. I saw great joy there, and I didn't know the cause of it. I thought perhaps they were rejoicing over my passing from this world. But later they informed me that I had not passed. They took great pleasure in the fact that I was teaching their Torah down below. I still do not understand the reason for this joy. I asked Mashiach, and this is the most famous part of this letter. I asked Mashiach, when is the Master coming? And he answered me, this will be a sign. When your teachings will spread forth and be revealed, and your wellsprings spread outwards, that which I have taught you and you have grasped 
And then they will also be able to have the effect you have. The negative forces will be nullified and it will be a time ripe for redemption. What was Mashiach telling the Baal Shem Tov? You want, you want me to come? You want Mashiach to come? You want the world to be ready? Your teachings have to flow outward. Right? The exact words here. They will spread forth. They will spread outwards. What is outward? It has to reach everyone. Even those that, that are not considered insiders. Uh, let's see here, let's continue with the Rebbe. The story is told that when the instruction was given that the teachings of Hasidus need to be spread everywhere to all people, Hasidim cried. On the one hand, spreading Hasidus is what will bring Mashiach. But on the other hand, it requires that the great secrets of Hasidus should be revealed in the public through fair. When my predecessor, the previous Rebbe began tr- publishing translations of Hasidic teachings in various language. There were also people that raised complaints. They asked, how can you take the deepest secrets of the Torah and translate them into foreign languages, thereby enabling everyone to understand them? These teachings were even published in newspapers, bringing them into the public thoroughfare. What's going on? How can you do this? The explanation given above is relevant to our case as well. Spreading the teachings of Hasidus is indeed a difficult and risky task. And this is why Hasidim cried. But the result was extraordinarily successful, leading to a great spiritual elevation. The same applies to the translation of Hasidus spearheaded by the previous Rebbe. This was a risky step at the time because it provided even distant people access to these teachings. But we see that it was successful. The lesson we can learn from this is to engage in the spreading of the teachings of Hasidus, even to a person who seems far removed from them. We need to look at such people like Aaron did in his time, seeing the positive potential they have. We need to spread Hasidus to everyone in their own language, and this will lead to the redemption speedily in our time. So what's the lesson we can learn from this? A translation, yes, you're right. Translation might be a little bit different than the original. But, since the idea of spreading Hasidus was commissioned from above, that mandate was given to the Baal Shem Tov from Mashiach. When the previous Rebbe started to translate Hasidus into other languages, that was definitely a mandate from above. That was another step in realizing this mission of spreading the, the wellsprings of Hasidus to everyone, to every person, that everyone should be able to understand them, everyone should have access to them. And since this was commissioned from above, so we know that there is a tremendous blessing, that it's going to be successful. And therefore, in learning Hasidus and learning these deep teachings, learn it in the language that you're capable of learning it in. And don't feel they have less than through learning it in English, in Spanish, in any language that it's available in, you are learning the original. You're learning the wellspring. And your soul is able to connect to that. And these teachings are able to inspire us. And they're able to lead us in the right direction. And most importantly, the more we learn these teachings, the more we allow these teachings to permeate our minds and our hearts 
to every single part of us, even those parts that seem to be so foreign to divine service. When we allow these teachings to be absorbed into every part of our being, we are preparing the world in our little way for the coming of Mashiach. Thank you all for joining us. Thank you, thank you. When you're coming back, thank you're back.